time as we go through this passage to not rush the Word of God, to be able to go through it and, and be able to learn from it. Lord, I pray you give me clarity of mind to say the things, Father, that you would have me to say. I pray, Father, that you would please uh, help me to remember, Lord, the things that we've looked at and studied in this passage, Lord. Help me to be able to be a help to these people that when we leave here, Lord, we know that we've studied your Word and we know that we heard from you. In your precious name I pray. Amen. Alright, when we're there, in Hosea chapter number 7, we've been traveling through the book of Hosea. On Wednesday night, we find ourselves at the halfway mark there, Hosea chapter number 7. There's 14 chapters in the book of Hosea, and we've been going through it, and uh, God is just very systematically, uh, is just explaining the grievances that He has against His people, and a lot of the prophets are like that. God is just going through, but there's a lot to learn here. If you look at verse number 1, the Bible says, When, and this is the Lord speaking, He says, When I would have healed Israel. And I want you to make note of the fact that, you know, sometimes as fundamental Baptists, and I'm not ashamed of that, I'm not ashamed to say that, I'm an independent fundamental Baptist. I'm not a non-denominational, I'm not a, uh, you know, I I take a stand with that uh, group of people because they preach the Bible and they preach right. But you know, sometimes, as an independent, fundamental, you know, soul-winning, King James Bible-believing, temperamental Baptist, uh, we can do such a good job at preaching all the negative that we're supposed to preach, that we're commanded to preach, that sometimes we get this idea that God is an angry God. And that God is a God that, that you know, just wants to uh, smack you upside the head whenever you do wrong and, and has no love there. And, and there is a lot to be said for the uh, anger of God and there's a lot to be said for the wrath of God. And I think it's something that's not talked about enough in our society. But I want you to remember that when God is dealing with you and when God is maybe afflicting you or hurting you, the purpose is not to afflict and the purpose is not to hurt. The purpose is not to just, you know, punish you for the day punishing you, God does those things because He loves you. He chastises those whom He loves. And there in verse number 7, I want you to see God says, when I would have healed Israel. Now, He says, I'm willing and I'm open and I'm able to heal your sin. And I want you to remember the fact that God does not deal with us in in, in anger just simply because we upset Him. But everything that God does is to bring us closer to Himself. When God is taking us through trials, is to draw us closer to Himself. And I want you to remember that God really does always have the best interests of you and your family in mind. Keep your finger there in Hosea. Go with me to the book of Jeremiah real quickly. Jeremiah chapter number 29. Jeremiah 29. Let me just share a couple verses with you that are... uh, Uh, An encouragement, I think, from time to time to remember how God feels about us. In Jeremiah, if you if you go past the book of Daniel, going traveling towards the left in your Bible, there, go past Daniel, go past Ezekiel, go past the book of Lamentations, and you'll find yourself in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter twenty-nine. Let me just share a verse with you. Jeremiah chapter number twenty-nine, and look at verse number eleven. Jeremiah chapter twenty-nine. And verse number 11, the Bible says, For I know the thoughts. This is God speaking, by the way. He says, For I know the thoughts that I think toward you. God says, I, I know the way I think toward you. Did you. Do you realize that God thinks about you? God thinks about you every day. I didn't say God thinks about the world. I said God thinks about you. The Bible says, For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not evil, to give you an expected end. 
See, God, God is not just up in heaven just, just oh, I'm going to get them and you just watch. Oh, they cross the line. The Bible says, if you go back to Hosea, when I would have healed Israel, God says, I, I'm willing, I'm open. He says, I know the thoughts I have for you. He said, I want to bring you to an expected end. He said, I want to give you peace. He says, I, I'm, I'm ready to heal you. But notice the problem when I would have healed Israel. Then, notice, then the iniquity of Ephraim was discovered. See, the problem that we have, you say, why can't I get a blessing from God? It's, it's our problem, it's our sin problem, it's not God's problem. God is willing to bless. He says, then the iniquity of Ephraim was discovered, and the wickedness of Samaria, for they commit falsehood, and the thief, remember we talked about the thieves last week, the thief cometh in, and the troop of robbers, remember that's how he described the spiritual leadership, he said, the troop of robbers spoileth without, and they consider not in their hearts, that I remember all their wickedness. Now I'm not going to take time to develop this. You can study this out on your own if you'd like. And you should. But there is a great thought and a great doctrine taught in Scripture about the fact that God does not remember our sins. When we, when we confess our sins to God and He forgives our sins, the Bible says He will not remember them. The Bible says He forgets all about them. The Bible says we are separated from our sins as far as the East is from the West. And we like the fact that it says the east is from the west because the east, you, you, you'll never, they'll never meet. The east and the west will never meet. And God says He won't remember our wickedness, but you got to understand, okay, here He says, verse 2, And they consider not in their hearts that I remember all their wickedness. You say, well, which one is it? Here's what you got to understand. When God forgives you of your sin, He forgets your sin. But when you're living in sin, when you're living in wickedness and unrighteousness, and you have not yet forsaken that, you have not yet confessed that, you have not yet gone right with God, the Bible says, I don't turn. I don't just turn my face. I don't just forget about what you've done. He says, I remember. Look at verse 2. And they consider not in their hearts that I remember all their wickedness. Now their own doings have beset them about. Notice what God says. They. Okay. The word they there is referring to their wickedness. He says, they are before my face. you got to remember, everything you do, God sees. And see, we, we get this idea and, and we get, you know, we get hyped up on the fact and we ought to get hyped up on the fact that, well, I've got eternal security and I can't lose my salvation. And once we're saved, we're always saved. And it doesn't matter what we do, you know, God has forgotten my sins. And that's true in a, in, a, in, a, in a theology and the fact that, you know, I stand before God in righteousness. I stand with God for God. When God sees me, He sees Jesus Christ. But you've got to understand, in a very practical way, our sins are before God all the time. And He doesn't just look away. He doesn't just ignore us. See, today we have this idea that God is this big Santa Claus up in heaven, you know. And He's just like, what does it matter what you do? He's always there. No, our sins are a stench to God. He says, they consider not in their hearts that I remember all their wickedness. He says, he says you don't even think of the fact. You don't even think of the fact that I'm watching your life and watching you do these things. See, you and I, here's what we do. We put on a show at church and then, you know, on a Sunday we act a certain way and do a certain thing. And then on Monday it's just a different story. God says, I can see you on Sunday and Monday. God says, I see what you do on Tuesday and Wednesday. I know your life on Friday and Saturday. I know what you're doing on Sunday night and I know what you're doing on Friday night. God says, they don't consider... They consider not in their hearts that I remember all their wickedness, now their own doings. Now, I want you to make note of this phrase. Their own doings, okay, referring to their wickedness. 
Their own doings have beset them about. That word beset there means to trouble. It means to harass. It means it's giving you complications. It means it's stopping you from proceeding. The Bible says their own doings have beset them about. Keep your finger there, Hosea. Go to the book of 2 Timothy with me, real quickly. 2 Timothy, chapter number 2. Look at verse 25. 2 Timothy, towards the end of your New Testament there. If you can find those T-books, First and 2 Thessalonians, First, Second 2 Timothy, and Titus, all those T-books are kind of grouped together there. So find the T towards the end of the New Testament and get to 2 Timothy, chapter number 2. Look at verse 25. 2 Timothy, chapter number 2, and verse number 25. I want you to see this. 2 Timothy, chapter 2, and verse 25. 2 Timothy 2.25, the Bible says, In meekness, instructing those, notice, make note of this phrase, that oppose themselves. If God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledge of the truth. Do you know that your sin does not hurt God? God is not any less God if you serve Him or not. God's power, God is no less powerful whether you're right with Him or not. God, nothing is taken from or added to God based on your life and my life. But sin does not affect God. But you know who does affect? You. You know, the, the, the truth of the matter is, you know, we think, well, you know, the, the sin is just, it's, you know, it's just my problem. It's nobody. No, it, and that's exactly what it is. It's your problem. Because sin, the Bible says, look at what it says there. In meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves. The sin in your life and the hidden wickedness in your life and the stuff that you're hiding, the stuff that you think, well, nobody knows. God knows, number one. God knows. And number two, it's not hurting anybody except you. It's opposing you. It's opposing your family. It's opposing your wife. It's opposing your kids. It's opposing your future. It's not hurting God. And by the way, it's not hurting us. It's hurting you. That's why the Bible says, if you go back to Hosea, they consider not in their hearts that I remember all their wickedness. Now their own doings have troubled and harassed and beset them about. They are before my face. Verse 3. They make the king glad with their wickedness and the princes with their lies. They are all adulterers. Now, that was all introduction. As we get into the rest of this passage here, I want you to realize that there are four pictures that God gives us about His people in Hosea chapter number 7. Four pictures, and I want you to notice a few things there. If you look at verse 4, you get the first one. He says, they are all adulterers. That's a, uh, referring back to Gomer. Remember Gomer, who represents God's people, and Hosea, who represents God, or the Lord Jesus Christ. And she was a wife of whoredoms. She was cheating on her husband in the same way that you and I cheat on God when we put other gods and other things before Him. Verse 4, he says, they are all adulterers. And I want you to notice the first picture there. He says, as an oven. As an oven. The first picture there. He says, as an oven. Heated by the baker, who ceases from raising after he hath kneaded the dough until it be leavened. Now, I'll be honest with you. You look at that verse right now. Okay, look, look, look at it. I'm going to read it again. You read it in your mind with me. Look what it says. They are, as, they are all adulterers as an oven heated by the baker, who ceases from raising after he hath kneaded the dough until it be leavened. Now, you can take that verse... A couple different ways. And I spent a whole lot of time on this verse trying to figure this verse out and trying to figure out what is God talking about. I even, because I'm not necessarily the baking type, 
I even asked my wife. I said, look at this verse. Tell me, am I missing something here? In regards to my wife's a, a, a great baker. If you've never had her cookies, she bakes a lot and she does good. So I even told my wife, I was like, is there something here that I don't know that God's trying to teach us about baking? You know, or something that would be going to apply to our lives? And, and she helped me out with a few things, you know. But look, look at verse 4. It says, they are all adulterers. As an oven, heated by the baker. Okay, here's what I want you to see. Here's the illustration. In the days of Hosea, they did not have kitchens and ovens and, and stuff like you and I have today. And it was very likely in those days that they would maybe begin to heat the oven the night before they were going to use it. So if they're going to get up early uh, uh, to, to start baking, you know, they might start that flame or get that thing going maybe that night before and let it get real hot uh, uh, so that they could, it could be perfect for the baking there. Look at verse 5. Look, verse 4. They are all adulterers as an oven heated by the baker. Do you see that? As an oven heated by the baker. Now, here's a phrase that threw me off. And I, I, I think I decided I know what it means. You can figure it out. You, know, you tell me if you've got another, uh, another verse or reference you can show me there. But he says, uh, heated by the baker who ceases. Okay, the word ceases means to stop. It means to come to an end. So, who is referring to the baker? He says, who ceases? So, the baker stops from raising. Do you see that word raising there? After, so when does he stop from raising? After he had kneaded the dough. So you know you got to get that dough ready, prepare it. You know, he says, after he had kneaded the dough, until it be leavened. Now the word leaven there is talking about the fact that you're going to allow it to rise. Okay? Now what was throwing me off was that word raising there. But I, I believe what this verse is talking about, and I'm going to prove it to you in a second, okay? I believe what this verse is talking about is this. The baker prepares the dough. He gets it all ready. He, he gets it all, you know, he, he does the kneading. He does all the stuff he's got to do. And then he puts it aside. Uh, because today, you know, my wife was explaining to me today, they have what's called quick, quick, uh, quick rise yeast, right? You know, I don't think Hosea had, you know, McCormick's quick rise yeast, you know what I mean? So I think what this verse is referring to, and I'm going to show you why I believe that later in the passage. Okay? So just listen to what I'm saying. But the baker there begins to knead that dough, get that dough ready. Then he sets it aside to allow it to rise. Alright, the leaven, the yeast. What he does then is he gets the oven going so that it can be heated up. So by the time the bread rises and the oven is hot, he can get to work. Now here's what he does, okay? He says, well, I got the bread. I got it ready. Uh, I got it all kneaded and I got everything so soon. I'm going to set it off here so it can begin to rise. I'm going to get the oven started. I'm going to get it hot so it'll be ready to go. And then he decides, you know, I think I'm a little tired. I think I'm going to maybe lay down a little bit. And he sees it to rise there as a reference to the fact, or sees it from raising as a reference to the fact that he goes to sleep. He's no longer awake. He is sleeping while the dough is rising, okay, the leaven, and the oven is warming up. Now you say, well, where do you get all that from? Look, skip down to verse 6. For they have made ready their hearts like an oven. Whilst they lie, is the word lie there? In wait, their baker sleepeth all the night. You see that? Okay? So the baker sleepeth all the night. In the morning it burneth as a flaming fire. Now I want you to notice, okay? Because we're going to look at something interesting. But just so you don't think I'm skipping verses, look at verse 5. I'm not going to talk about verse 5, but it says, In the day of our king, the princes have made him sick with bottles of wine. He stretched out his hand with scorners. Okay? I, I preached an entire sermon on the subject of wine and alcohol on Sunday morning, so I'm not going to deal with that tonight. But I, I do want you to make note of this, okay? In the day, remember we're talking about, how can you tell if it's juice 
wine in the Bible, or if it's alcohol wine in the Bible, how can you tell by the context? Okay, so what are we talking about? In the day of our king, the princes had made him sick. You see that word sick there? Okay, so are we talking about grape juice? Talking about orange juice? I've never heard of grape juice making somebody sick, but I, you know what does make people sick? Alcohol. The day of our, you know, made him sick with bottles of wine, he stretched out his hands with corn. I just love the fact that God paints an accurate picture of alcohol in the Bible. It's not fun. It'll make you sick. It's not fun. You know, it'll, it'll, it'll cause you to wake up the next day, you know, throwing up and vomiting at the toilet. That's not fun. It's not fun. You know, you know, what, you know what's fun to me? Going on a camping trip and then coming home and remembering everything I did. That's fun. Memories with my children, memories with my wife, memories with, with, with other uh, uh, believers, that's fun. Not, not well, you know, yeah, when I was in my 20s, I sure had a whole lot. I can't remember half of it. Spent, you know, every Saturday morning sick from Friday night. That's, what the, that's the picture that the, Bible, the, the, that the Bible gives us of wine. Okay, look at verse 6. For they have made ready their hearts like an oven. Whilst they lie in wait, their baker sleepeth all the night. In the morning it burneth as a flaming fire. Okay, so we got to answer this. What does the oven represent in the Bible? Okay, keep your finger there, Hosea. Go with me to the book of Psalms. Psalm 21. we got to move through this quickly, alright? Psalm 21. Because i got to drive all night long. Psalm 21. Look at verse number 9. None of you care about that, but we're still going to move quickly. Psalm 21. Look at verse 9. What does the oven represent in the Bible? Are you there in Psalm 21? Psalm, if you, it's, it's, it's towards the center of the Bible. If you open your, your Bible just right smack down in the middle, you'll more than likely fall in the book of Psalms. Psalm 21, look at verse 9. The Bible says, Thou shalt make them as a fiery oven in the time of thine anger. Do you see that? I don't think you should talk about God being angry. The Bible talks about God being angry. Thou shalt make them as a fiery oven in the time of thine anger. The Lord shall swallow them up in His wrath. The word wrath means anger. And the fire shall devour them. Okay, so the fiery oven or an oven with flame, what does that represent? The anger and the wrath and the judgment of God. Are you following what I'm saying? Go to the book of Malachi. Malachi, chapter number 4. Malachi, chapter number 4. Malachi is the last book. In the Old Testament, right before the book of Matthew. And I want you to, this is what I want you to do, okay? I want you to get Malachi chapter 4 in one hand, and get Hosea chapter 7 in another hand. We're going to go back and forth, and I want you to see this, okay? Malachi chapter 4, and when you're at Malachi chapter 4, get back to Hosea chapter 7. Look at verse 6 again. Malachi chapter 4, verse 6. For they have made ready their hearts... Like an oven. Malachi, I'm sorry, Hosea chapter 7 verse 6. For they have made ready their, uh, their hearts like an oven. Whilst they lie in wait, their baker sleepeth all the night. Make note of this. In the morning, okay, in the morning it burneth as a flaming fire. Okay, here's what you got to understand, alright? The baker decided, you know, I'm a little tired, I'm going to lay down a little bit. He ended up staying asleep all night long. He wakes up in the morning and the oven is just this raging fire out of control. Compare that to Malachi chapter 4, look at verse 1. For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an what? Oven. Do you see that? So the day's coming that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble. And the day that cometh shall burn them up. This is talking about the wrath of God, the judgment of God. Shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it 
shall leave them neither root nor branch. So the day is coming that is going to be, you're going to burn up as an oven. Now look at verse 2. But unto you, okay? So he says, this is going to happen to other people. But unto you, who's Malachi speaking to? God's people. But unto you that fear my name shall the son. You see that word son there? Alright, so that's the son, S-U-N, right? That's what comes up every morning and comes down. Okay, now here's what you understand. The son, S-U-N here, is a picture of the son, S-O-N. You understand what I'm saying? And it is a picture of the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ, okay, is coming back. Every time you wake up in the morning and you see the sun, S-U-N, rise, you got to remember that one day, number one, the sun, S-O-N, did rise from the grave, and number two, one day he's coming back and all of us will rise from the grave. Do you understand? Now look at verse 2. But unto you that fear, the name, the, the, uh, that fear my name shall the sun of righteousness arise with healing in His wings. When Jesus Christ comes back, He's going to bring back healing. You say, what, what is that a reference to? The fact that the Bible tells us that this corruptible will put on incorruption, this mortal will put on immortality. Let me tell you something. Every sickness, every disease, every everything that your body has, every corrupt part of your body, one day it'll be perfectly healthy, it'll be perfectly sound, it'll be without sin. God is bringing back with Him. When the sun comes He's bringing up healing in His wing. Look at verse 2. But unto you that fear My name, shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in His wings. Look what it says. And He shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall. Okay, so here's the question. When the sun comes up, what do we call that? Morning. Go back to Hosea chapter 7, look at verse 2. Oh, I'm sorry, verse 6. For they have made ready their heart like an oven, whilst they lie in wait, their baker sleepeth all the night. In the morning, what happens in the morning? When the sun of righteousness arises? When the sun comes up in the morning? When Jesus Christ comes back in the morning? It burneth as a flaming fire. Here's what you got to understand, okay? This is a perfect example of the, you know, we talked about it a lot around here, but the pre-tribulation rapture, you know, many of you probably heard of the pre-tribulation rapture. The number one, I mean, this is what most people believe in the Bible, they believe, you know, fundamental Baptists for sure, they believe in the, what's called the pre-tribulation rapture. They, they teach this, alright, that God is going to come back, the sun's going to rise, He's going to rapture us out of here. But then there's going to be like a seven year period before the wrath of God is poured out. Alright? Now according to the Bible, is that true? Go back to Malachi chapter 4, look at verse 1. For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble. And the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. So there's a day coming where God's going to burn everything up. Where God's, well, What does the burning oven represent? The wrath, the anger, the judgment of God. That day is coming, verse 2. But unto you, on that same day, unto you, don't worry, you're not going to get burned up. Don't worry, the wrath of God is not going to fall on you. Look what he says. But unto you that fear my name, shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in His wings. Go back to, to Malachi chapter uh, 7, look at verse 6. For they have made ready their hearts like an oven, while they lie in wait. Their baker sleepeth all the night. In the morning, in the morning, that's a good thing for you and I. That's when the sun rises for you and I. That's when healing comes for you and I. But 
for them in the morning it burneth as a flaming fire. See, when God, when Jesus Christ comes back, you know, in the Bible it's known as the day of Christ, if you want to do a study of that phrase. The day of Christ is known as the rapture. The day of the Lord is known as the day of judgment, the day of wrath, when God begins to pour out his wrath. And the thing is that you got to understand, in the Bible the day of the Lord and the day of Christ are the same day. They're the exact same time. It's just for me, it's the day of Christ. For me, it's the sun rising. For me, it's the day of healing. But in the morning for them, it burneth as a flaming fire. By the way, that's why Jesus Christ said to the... Remember when they were taking Him to the cross? He said, he said hey, you know what? Right now, He says, this is your hour and the power of darkness. He says, right now it's night. Right now the baker's asleep. Right now it's nighttime. But you know what? One day the sun will rise. And when He rises, He'll bring healing in His wings for some, and He'll bring flames and burning and judgment and anger for others. That's what the Bible says. Look at verse 8. Ephraim, well, look at verse 7. They are all hot as an oven and have devoured their judges. All their kings are fallen. There is none among them that calleth unto me. Verse 8. Ephraim, he hath mixed himself among the people. Ephraim is a cake not turned. Remember I told you there was four pictures in the book of Hosea. we got to move through these quickly. I'm, I'm spending a lot of time on that first one. But that first one was a picture of the oven. What did that represent? The judgment of God. But not for believers. Because for us, it's a great day when the sun comes up. For the world, it's not a good day. By the way, when people are living in sin, it's never good when there's light. The Bible says they love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. But here we got another picture, verse 8. Ephraim... He hath mixed himself among the people. Ephraim is a cake not turned. A cake not turned. You say, what is that? A picture of. Go to Numbers chapter 15, verse 20. We got we to gotta do this quickly, okay? Numbers chapter 15. Numbers chapter 15, verse 20. Numbers 15, 20. You say, what does a cake represent in Scripture? Number 15, verse 20. The Bible says, Ye shall offer, offer up a cake. Do you see that? Numbers 15, verse 20. I'm sorry, verse, yeah, verse 20. You shall offer up a cake of the first of your dough for an heave offering. As you do the heave offerings of the threshing floor, so shall ye heave it. Now, I could have showed you a lot of verses, but for sake of time, I'm just going to show you that one. You can study it on your own. But in the Bible, uh, something that was often sacrificed to God, a sacrifice that was brought to God, was this cake. It was a cake, and there's different types that they could bring to God, but it was a picture of a sacrifice, okay? But I want you to go to the book of Judges. Go to Judges, chapter number, let's see what I want you. Judges, chapter number 7, look at verse 13. So the cake represents a sacrifice, but it not only represents a sacrifice, in the Bible it, it represents something else, which is the same thing as a sacrifice. Are you there in Judges, chapter number 7? And now we're, we'll get to Judges, chapter 7, the study of Gideon, eventually, on Sunday nights, but I want you to just see this real quickly. Judges, chapter 7, look at verse number 13. Remember the story of Gideon? Judges chapter 7, verse 13. If you don't know who Gideon is, you got to read uh, the entire book. Just read the entire book of Judges. It's, it's a great, great book. Verse 13. And when Gideon was come, behold, there was a man that told a dream. Remember, Gideon, God has called Gideon to, he's going to be one of the judges that's going to deliver his people. Okay? Gideon needs a little convincing about this. He's a little scared to go do what God has called him to do. And God's being very patient with him. And God says, look, if you want to know that I have given you the people, I want you to go down to the camp of the Midianites. Well, look at verse 12 so you can get the context. 
So God tells Gideon, before he, he goes to battle with the Midianites, He says, go down to the camp of the Midianites, and I'll show you that I've given you the, 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 the battle already. Look at verse 12. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the children of the east lay along the valley like grasshoppers for multitude. There's a lot of them. And by the way, Gideon ended up only going in to battle with 300, not very many. Like grasshoppers for multitude, and their camels were without number, as the sand of the sea side for multitude. Look at verse 13. And when Gideon was come, behold, there was a man that told a dream. So Gideon goes down into the camp. He's just kind of, I don't know, hiding in the bushes. And he's listening to these, his enemies. They're having a conversation by the flame side there, verse 13. And when Gideon was come, behold, there was a man that told a dream unto his fellows, and said, Behold, I dreamed a dream, and lo, notice he said, I had a dream. Let me tell you about it. A cake, can you make note of that word? A cake of barley bread tumbled into the host of Midian, and came unto a tent, and smote it, that it fell and overturned it, and the tent lay along. So he said, I had a dream. I saw a cake come out, and it beat all of us up. That's what he said. Verse 14. And his fellow answered and said, This is nothing else save the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel, for in his hand hath God delivered Midian and all the host. So here's the thing. God gave the man a dream where a cake came out and pretty much beat them all in battle. And then he says, You know what? That cake, you know who that represents? Gideon. You say, well, I thought, I thought sacrifice, a, uh, a cake, you can go back to Hosea. I thought a cake res- represented sacrifices, but here it represents a man. Because the Bible says, in Romans chapter number 12, and verse 1, it says, I beseech you therefore, brother, by the mercies of God, that ye present yourselves a living sacrifice. So see, the cake represents a sacrifice, but the cake represents a man, it represents Gideon, represents you, it represents me. Why? Because God expects all of us to present ourselves a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Now here's the problem with this cake, verse 8. Ephraim, he hath mixed himself among the people. Ephraim is a cake not turned. Do you see that? He said, Ephraim, you know, maybe you can think of this like a pancake. He says, Ephraim is like a pancake that never got turned over. He burns on one side and he's uncooked on the other side. You know what that is? Worthless. <laughs> Would you eat that? I'm going to go down to the IHOP tonight and ask for a pancake. They bring me a cake. It's burnt to the crisp on one side and it's, you know, it's, it's uncooked on the other side. You think I'm going to eat that? Would you present that to God? God says, your problem is you are an unacceptable sacrifice. Your problem is you spend too much time doing things that you ought not be doing and getting burnt up. Not enough time doing things you should be doing, getting, you know, baked properly, and you are a cake not turned. He says, you're worthless. I can't use you. And he said, well, how did you get that way? Look at verse 8. Ephraim, he had to mix himself. The word mix there is talking about the fact that they mixed themselves with unbelievers. They went and got married and had marriages with unbelievers. And they got around the wrong crowd. Now, now just follow this. Look at this. Ephraim, he had mixed himself among the people. Ephraim is a cake not turned. Now, here's what you got to understand, okay? God says, I can't use you. God says, you are worthless. God says, you're not a sacrifice that I can use of you. Here's why. Because you mix yourself with people that I cannot use you. Look at verse 9. Strangers, okay? The word stranger is talking about a foreigner. Because remember... We've been saying to the book of Judges, they were supposed to, were they supposed to have relationship with the heathen of the land? No, they were not. 
That represented the world. Look at verse 9. Strangers have devoured His strength. Make note of the word strength there. Strangers have devoured His strength. And He, if you don't mind underlining in your Bible, I'd underline these words. He knoweth it not. Do you see that? God says, they took your strength away, and you didn't even know it. He said, because of the people that you were around, because of the mixed people you mixed yourself with, they took your strength away, you didn't even know it. Look what it says, verse 9. Yea, gray hairs are here and there upon him, yet he knoweth not. Do you see that? Now let me ask you something. How many gray hairs would you have to get before you start noticing them? Some of you, probably not very many. <laughs> you know, you look at yourself so much. But you know, I mean, somebody getting gray hair, I mean, you're going to look in a mirror and realize, oh man, I'm getting a lot of gray hair. I remember for, for years and years and years and years and years, I mean, I've been alive that many years, for a long time, from when I, from when I was a little boy, okay, so for, for my entire life, my entire life, I had one gray hair my entire life. Just one. And my wife and I, you know, we got married. My wife would cut my hair. She'd always point out that one. You got one gray hair. I'm like, I know. You told me that last time you cut my hair. You know, I have one gray hair. My son Joel, he's a lot like me. He has one gray hair. Then I started a church. Now I have, seriously, like 50 gray hair. See what you've done to me? I, I'm not even joking. Like, you, you can count them after service. I have a lot of gray hairs. Last, I have one gray hair for like 24 years, and then and then in th- three years I got like like 50 gray hairs. Alright? Just the stress of dealing with uh, you lovely people. <laughs> now look, you get a gray hair, you're gonna notice it. Someone's gonna point it out. Someone's gonna say, hey, you're getting a lot of gray hairs. Okay? But God says here, these people, okay, what is what are gray hairs? I'm not trying to offend you. Okay, so don't take this the wrong way. But what do gray hairs represent? You're getting older. What do they represent? You're getting weaker. What do they represent? You're getting heavier, maybe. <laughs> what do they represent? You're not as strong as you used to be. Not as healthy as you used to be. Look at Luke verse 8. Ephraim, he had mixed himself among the people. Ephraim is a cake not turned. Strangers have devoured his strength. What do you have when you're young? Strength. And he knoweth it not. Yea, gray hairs are here, and there upon him, yet he knoweth it not. So, could you really get a whole lot of gray hairs and not realize it? But God says, spiritually these people are getting weak. Spiritually these people are getting ready to die. And they don't even realize it. But why, why is it happening? Because of the people they're with. Let me give you an example. Let's go back to Judges. Remember we were in Judges earlier? Go to Judges 16. Look at another judge. Okay, we're looking at a lot of Judges. Well, I've been studying the book of Judges a lot. <laughs> so I'm going to preach it a lot, I guess. Judges chapter 16. Look at verse 20. Judges 16. We'll get to Judges 16 as we travel through the book of Judges as well. But if you remember the story of Samson, remember the story of Samson? Great, powerful man. Superhuman strength that God gave him. I don't believe Samson was a big old bodybuilder either. I think he was a normal looking guy. And the power of God fell upon him. And God would give him that superhuman strength if he's relied on God. And by the way, the spiritual application there is that God can allow you to do things that you can't normally do with his power. But remember, what did Samson do? He started hanging out with women that he should not have been around. The Philistine women. Remember a woman by the name of Delilah? And what happened? Look at verse 20. And she said... 
The Philistines be upon thee, Samson. Remember, she tried time and time and time again to get a secret. At first he'd lie to him. At first he'd lie and say, well, it's this, it's that. She wanted the secret to his strength. And she, she, he would lie to her. And she tried and it wouldn't work. She tried and it wouldn't work. Finally, he told her his heart. You got to be very careful who you give your heart to. He told her his heart. told her the, the secret. She did it. Look, look at verse 19, just so you get the context. And she made him sleep upon her knees. And she called for a man, and she caused him to shave off the seven locks of his head, and she began to afflict him, and his... What, what's that say? Strength? Do you see that? His strength went from him. And she said, The Philistines be upon thee, Samson. And he awoke out of his sleep, and said... Notice how sad this is. He awoke out of his sleep and said, this is what Samson said, I will go out as at other times before and shake myself. Samson said, no problem, the Philistines are here, I'll just get up like I've gotten up before. I'll just get up with my superhuman strength and go beat them up like I've done it before. But look what it says, I will go out as at other times before and shake myself and he wished. Do you see that word wished there? I don't know that word about you. You know what that word wished means? It means new. He Wist not, he knew not that the Lord was departed from him. He knew, you know what he didn't realize? That God's strength had already left because of the people he was with. I wonder, you know, they shaved his head. I wonder if you would have looked closely at his shaven head if he would have started having a few white hairs. Not realize they were there. Go back to Hosea. You got you to understand this. The people you allow yourself to be around will take your strength. The people you allow yourself to be around will begin to kill you spiritually. You won't even realize it. One day you'll wake up and say, I'll just shake myself like I've done before and not even realize that God is no longer there. Your strength is no longer there. Why? Because of the people you hung out with? Because of the people you allowed to influence you? Because the people you were around, because the people Samson was around, we got to finish up. I got four minutes. Look at verse 10. And the pride of Israel testified to his face, and they do not return to the Lord their God, nor seek him for all this. That's the exact opposite of 2 Chronicles 7.14. Remember 2 Chronicles 7.14? If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their hand, their land. But in verse 10 says there, And the pride of Israel, the opposite of humbleness, testified to his face, and they do not not return to the Lord their God, nor seek Him for all this. Verse 11, Ephraim, here you've got number 3, Ephraim is, all, is like a silly duck. Okay, so the first picture was that of a hot oven. The second picture was that of a cake not turned. The third picture is of a silly duck. Now you got to understand this, okay? Go, go to 2 Timothy chapter 3. we got, we got to hurry up, right? 2 Timothy chapter number 3. 2 Timothy chapter number 3. The word silly, okay, in our vocabulary today, the word silly means like something that's kind of funny. You know, that's silly. That's just humorous. Okay, the word silly, the, the archaic meaning, the meaning that was given to it, you know, that, that the way the word was used when our King James Bible was translated, means helpless or weak, weak-minded. Someone that you can take advantage of. That's what the word silly means. The Bible uses the word silly in two other places. Let me show you one of the places. 2 Timothy, uh, chapter number 3, look at verse 6. 2 Timothy, chapter number 3, verse 6. 
The Bible says, For of this sort are they which creep into houses and lead captive silly women laden with sins, led away with diverse lusts. You see that? Now, I don't know what you think of when you think of the word silly women, but it's not talking about a girl that just likes to giggle a lot. It's talking about a girl that's very weak, a lady that's very weak spiritually, and she's led astray. Alright? Go back to Hosea. God says, this is how my people are. Ephraim is like a silly, a weak, a not very strong dove. Remember the Bible talks about the Christian that's not very strong? They are, they are blown about with every wind of doctrine. They're just led astray by, well, well, they told me this, well, this person told me that, well, that person, don't be silly. Get some strength to you. Realize, where, where do you stand? What do you believe? Read your Bible. Ephraim also is like a silly dove without heart. They call, look at the context. They call to Egypt. They go to Assyria. They go here, they go there. They don't know where they're going. They're just a silly dove. They're just a silly, they're just an immature, a very helpless, a very weak little bird. Doesn't even know where it's going. When they shall go, look what God says, I will spread my net upon them. God says, I'm going to capture you like a silly dove. I will bring them down as the fowls of the heaven. I will chastise them as their congregation hath heard. Woe unto them, for they have fled from me. Destruction unto them, because they have transgressed against me. Though I have redeemed them, yet they have spoken lies against me. And they have not cried unto me with their hearts. When they, look what it says, when they howled, verse 14, when they howled, what does that remind you? Like a dog? Like a wolf? Like an animal? They howled upon their beds. They assembled themselves for corn and wine. And they rebelled against me. You know what I realized? The more and more that I, the longer that God allows me to pastor, is that there are people that get themselves in deep issues, deep problems, deep sin. And they howl about their problems. But they never actually seek God. You'll hear them howling. You'll hear them complaining. Why is God doing this to me? And they don't realize God's not doing that to you. You did that. You opposed yourself. You beset yourself. There was 13. Though I have bound and strengthened their arms, yet do they imagine mischief against me. They return... Oh, Pastor, you don't understand. I'm howling right now. I'm, I'm hurting. I'm howling. They return. Here's the problem. But not to the Most High. I'm hurting. Then why don't you get right with God? My, my finances are all messed up. Then why don't you just do what the Bible says about your finances? Well, my marriage is all messed up. Why don't you just do what the Bible says about your marriage? Well, you know. There's a whole lot of howling today, but not a whole lot of returning to the Most High. Look what it says. Here's the fourth picture. Remember, I told you there's four pictures of it. Cake not turned. A silly dove. Here's the fourth picture, verse 16. They return, but not to the Most High. They are like a deceitful bow. See that? A bow there is talking about like a bow and arrow. He says, They are like a deceitful bow. Their princes shall fall by the sword for the rage of their tongue. This shall be their derision in the land of Egypt. The Bible says they are like a deceitful bow. Let me show you one more passage. We're done right here. One more passage. Psalm 78. This is the last passage I'll, I'll, I'll show you. Uh, then then I'll, I'll show you a couple more things in, in Hosea and we'll be done. Right? Uh, Psalm 78. i got to hurry up. I'm already a minute over what I wanted to do. Psalm 78. So move, move quickly and we'll, we'll get this done fast. Psalm 78, verse 57. Psalm 78, verse 57. What is that uh, deceitful bow about? Psalm 78, verse number 57. Psalm 78, verse 57. The Bible says, But turn back. Okay, look at verse 56, just so you can see the context. Psalm 78, verse 56. Yet they tempted and provoked the Most High God, and kept not 
his testimonies. But turned back and dealt unfaithfully like their fathers. They were turned aside. Make note of these words. They were turned aside like a deceitful bow. Do you see that? So what is a deceitful bow? It's a bow that deceives you. So you've got a bow and you've got an arrow and you're trying to aim it at a certain location. But because of the bend of the bow or because of the way it's made, it's a deceitful bow. So you are, look what it says, you are turned aside. Is that what it says? What, what, what verse did I want you to Psalm, uh, seven, what was it? Psalm uh, 78, 57? But turned back and dealt unfaithfully like their fathers. They were turned aside like... They were turned aside. They were turned aside like a deceitful bow. Go back to Hosea. The, the, the today, you know, you can think of it uh, maybe like, like a rifle with a sight not set correct. Or, or a bent barrel. Barrel. Where you're aiming at a certain direction, but you're not going to hit that because you're turned aside. Because you've got a deceitful bow. God says, my people are like a deceitful bow. They're trying to hit at a mark, but they'll never hit it. Because they're not doing it the way that I want them to. Paul said, I press toward the mark. Paul said, I've got a location I'm headed. He said, I've got a mark I'm trying to hit. But let me tell you something. I think we all have a mark we're trying to hit. I think we're all trying to do certain things with our marriages, with our children, with our finances, with our life. I think think nobody really grows up and is like, you know, I I think I want to grow up and just be a loser. That's what I want to do. I think I want to grow up and just be the worst mother that I could possibly be. That's that's who I want to be. I don't think none of us decide that. I think we all set out to be the best father I can be, the best mother I can be, the best husband I can be, the best Christian I can be, the best employee I can be, the best pastor I can be. You say, well, I'm trying to be the best I can be, but I can't. I just don't feel like I can hit that mark. Maybe it's because you're a deceitful bow. And you are turned aside. So how do I get straightened out? God will straighten you out. God will help you out. Hey, God will help you hit that mark. Paul said, I press toward the mark. Remember, Paul, when he was Saul, was headed the wrong direction. But eventually, he got on the right path. I want you to notice just one thing. We're we're finished right here, okay? He said, what is this all about? It's all about sin. It's all about the problems that sin brings us. But you've got to understand this. Look at verse 2, just real quickly. And they consider not in their... Do you see that word there? They consider not in their what? Hearts. Do you see that? They consider not in their hearts. Look at verse 6. For they have made ready their heart. So they made ready their heart. But here's a problem. They made it ready like an oven, which is not a good thing. Go down to verse 11. Ephraim also is like a silly dove without heart. Do you see that? Look at verse 14. And they have not cried unto me with their what? Heart. Let me tell you something. All sin is a heart problem. All unforgiveness is a heart problem. All anger is a heart problem. Every issue you've got in life, it's a problem. Is it God? No. God is willing and ready when I would have healed Israel. Then the iniquity of Ephraim was discovered. God is willing and ready to bless you and help you and be there for you. But oftentimes you and I oppose and beset ourselves because of our heart and the sin that we hold in our heart. If we would get the sin out, God says, I can help you hit your mark. Let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer. Dearly Father, Lord, we love you so much. Thank you for our church. Lord, thank you for a place that you can still go to and hear the Bible preached. Lord, thank you for a place that you can go to and still uh, go verse by verse, chapter by chapter through a book and just find these truths. So these books that so often people would just skip over, not even read. Lord, I pray you bless us. 
thoughts. Help us to get the sin out of our lives. Help us to realize, Lord, that you, you love us. You want the best for us. The thoughts you have for us are good thoughts. You want to give us peace. Father, we love you. In your precious name I pray. Amen. All right, well, let's